bum bum bottom 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 bum
And that, of course, sends Harley Quinn into a rage. Jimmy barely escapes with his fishing tackle intact. Well, I side with Harley on this one because we know, especially after reading this particular issue, Harley is not just a villain and neither is Poison Ivy. They both contain multitudes. And I think that you do have to engage with the person they are at the moment. And if they're being a hero... Respect it. I agree. I agree for sure, for sure. Uh, but that all explains a lot about the contemptuous relationship between Freckles and Harley Quinn as seen in the Welcome to Metropolis arc. And we wish we had known that before we had our conversation two weeks back. Oh, Thank well. you, Ariel. If only you had a time machine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why we have folks like Ariel and the rest of you listeners to keep us in track. And if Ariel wasn't already in our good books enough, she also left us a five-star review on iTunes. What? How dare you? You are a true delight. Lisa, why don't you go ahead and read her review for our listeners and encourage our listeners to uh, do the same and help the podcast out. We want to infect all of the internet and these reviews do that for us. Sure, here I go. This is, this is Ariel's review. I'm transitioning now. Can't say enough good things about this podcast. Geeks discussing comics, that's great. Geeks discussing couples in comics, that's an interesting twist. But a married couple with different interests, tastes, and perceptions of relationships, hashing it out with a new comic book couple and this new self-help book every week, that's high art. Ooh, this uh, is a very glowing review. High art, we're high art. And they're definitely got the cred to dish on the comics. They've already introduced me to so many new comics I might not have taken a chance on before their best of 2019 list and their holiday gift guide on Twitter. And yeah, that intro and outro, plus any musical interludes that happen along the way are amazing. Yay! Thank you, Ariel. Words of affirmation. That is my love love language. For sure, for sure. And we need to do more musical interludes. I don't think we've done one since Swamp Thing. I, I've already I've already in my mind been planning a, a Spider-Man one. Yeah. So so far in my it goes something like Zoobiza, 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 Zoobiza. What do you think? I like it. I like it. And I'm really excited when we uh, actually press uh, record on that tune and bring in some new CBCC content. Ooh, that's a that's a that's what we call a hint. Ooh, a teaser. <laughs> but let's get to it. We're tackling Harley Quinn once again, and we are jumping into the new Fifty Two era. With this week's episode, we're getting closer and closer to the current status quo of Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy continuity. That's what I'm excited about. Um, now, we've talked a lot about the New 52 in our short year of podcasting. That we have. And if you want to hear some more detailed thoughts on this DC Comics line-wide reboot, I suggest you go back and listen to CBCC episode 22, where we discuss the Aquaman New 52 reboot from Jeff Johns and Ivan Rice, uh, you know, because we all need to go back and, and, and explore a little more Arthur and Mira. That was one of our, my favorite couples. Not so much Lisa's favorite couple. They're okay. <laughs> I'm still reading Aquaman comics. Elisa, they're dead to her. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, the general gist of the New 52, though, is like back in 2011, DC Comics wanted a new batch of number ones to trick readers into purchasing their books. Not content with a simple renumbering, DC launched a massive Flash crossover event entitled Flashpoint 
that radically altered their comic book continuity, a la Crisis on Infinite Earths. Lisa's favorite plant, who thought he was a man, became that man again. Alec Holland lives in the New 52, Lisa. Huzzah. Yeah, again, not a fan of New 52, Lisa, are you? Not really. I think we're going to change your mind. I think we're going to change your mind this week. They undid some of my favorite things about Swamp Thing, and it hurts my feelings. I know, I know. I'm still mad about the Swamp Thing, too, Lisa. It's okay. Uh, Now, Harley Quinn enters this new world order as a top dog within the Suicide Squad team-up book, ditching her old animated series outfit for a sleeveless top, tight shorts, boots, and a hair color job of black and red split right down the middle. Not a fan! Oh, no, no. We're changing your mind about the New 52, Lisa. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't stuck with the narrative. A few years later, in January of 2014, Harley Quinn gets a new solo title. Hold up. Quick side note. uh, During Scott Snyder's Death of the Family Mega Joker event, the Joker forced Harley Quinn to dress in his old Red Hood costume to lure Batman into the old chemical plant that gave them their pearly white skin. Both Harley and the Joker get Batman into the tank, uh, but he escapes in his usual way, as does the Joker. And when Batman asks Harley where the clown prince has fled, she responds that Mr. J is not the Joker she once fell in love with, and they're on the outs. They're done. They're finito. So that's where she and old Chucklehead are when when Harley Quinn gets her solo title in 2013. I love that they're creating even more space between Harley Quinn and the Joker because she really deserves to be her own character. Yeah, for sure. It's it, it's good to get her away from Gotham City and the influence of both the Joker and Batman, right? And that's what this title does. It's, and it's super fun. It's super fun. Uh, it's written in partnership between married couple Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor. Under their leadership, Quinn is rejiggered from the gangster's mall to an actual anti-hero. She's freed from the shackles of Suicide Squad and becomes a landlady of an apartment building at Coney Island. She joins a roller derby team and starts work back up as a psychologist with an alias as our Harley Quinn persona is not known to the public within the New 52. I was so stoked to see her perched aside the couch again. Yeah, yeah. And like, if you love Harley Quinn because of the Birds of Prey movie that just came out recently, and you know, the Margot Robbie interpretation, her origins are really in this new 52 iteration. And I would recommend starting here rather than going back to the animated series or even the Carl Kessel, Terry Dodson solo run. Yeah, totally. So I've been a big fan of Jimmy Palmiotti for quite a while. Uh, he's a Leo, like me, Lisa, uh, with a birthday on August 14th, 1961. I don't know the first thing about what a being a Leo means, because I'm not a, uh, superstitious person. Well, yeah, being a Leo means you're courageous, like the Cowardly Lion. Uh, is that how it works? Sure. Uh, I don't know the astrology at all. Uh, but Jimmy Palmiotti has been in comics for about as long as I've been reading them. In 1991, he broke into the industry as an inker on titles like The Punisher and Ghost Rider. It's crazy how huge Ghost Rider was back in the 90s. You just don't get it. Uh, He's a New York boy through and through and a friend and collaborator with the other good old New York Marvel creator, Joe Quesada. Together in 1994, they formed Event Comics, creating characters like Ash, Painkiller Jane together. Event Comics 
were so successful that in 1998, when Marvel Comics was teetering on the verge of oblivion, Palmiotti and Casada were asked to run the Marvel Knights line, which produced some financially life-saving titles like Kevin Smith's Daredevil and Christopher Priest's Black Panther. In the early aughts, he started writing a batch of Wildstorm titles, stuff like The Resistance, 21 Down, and Cloudburst. As an imprint of DC, Wildstorm was Palmiotti's gateway into that company, and in 2006, he began an epic run on the character of Jonah Hex alongside co-writer Justin Gray. This is my jam. Lisa, we got to get you into Jonah Hex comics. Does he have a, a, a partner, a love partner? Uh, uh, no, I mean, there are dalliances, but uh, partner, mm, it's going to be hard. He could probably use a self-help book, though. He, he, he could probably use a self-help book for sure. Uh, Palmiotti met Amanda Connor when she was over at Marvel working as an editor and artist. Palmiotti often inked her pencils. I think that's so sweet. Yeah. And, Brad. Yeah. You can ink my pencils anytime. You got it. Like an octopus of some kind. I'm, I'm terrified what? and I shoot out ink. <laughs> <laughs> That's too many metaphors. I can't. I couldn't do. I couldn't, I couldn't handle your innuendo, so I made, made it weird. Now, Amanda <laughs> Connor, she graduated from the Kubert School, just like our buddy Stephen Bissett. She started out with Archie Comics and Marvel in the late 80s. And her first gig in comics was actually as an assistant to Bill Sienkiewicz. And she answered basically an ad in the paper because he was looking for um, like an assistant. And she was working at a local comic book shop. And she was like, I can, I can be Bill Sienkiewicz's assistant. And boom, magic happened. In 2002, along with Palmiotti and preacher scribe Garth Ennis, she created the utterly insane and magically atrocious comic book character, The Pro, about a superpowered prostitute. It's a comic that just needs to be read to be believed. Uh, while many thought they were already married, Palmiotti and Connor didn't tie the knot until 2013, around the time that they launched their Harley Quinn series. That's so sweet. We should get them on the podcast. Is uh, that a possibility? I'm, we're going to try. We're going to try. We're going to try. Gears uh, are churning. Yeah. F cross your fingers, people. Cross your fingers. Uh, Palmiotti and Connor's run ended up being a huge, massive ongoing series of a hundred issues to this date. They've spent more time on the character than anyone else. Now we're just covering the tiniest slice of their run, the Harley Quinn road trip special. We picked it because Palmiotti tweeted at us. We tweeted at him first. Yeah, of course. You know, you know like we're not. Nobody's that, reaching out to no us. One, no one's reaching out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but he picked this as one of his favorite stories revolving around the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy relationship. And it's one of our favorite kind of comics because you're just hanging out with them as characters. Yeah, yeah. It's a good sit. Uh, before we get to it, though, we got to talk about our love guru, Lisa. How's Lindsay King Miller's Ask a Queer Chick going to help us out this week? Oh, man, Brad. And you <laughs> thought you had a lot of notes. <laughs> Buckle up. I'm, I'm strapping in like an octopus who could squirt at any time. Brad doesn't understand how metaphors are supposed to work. <laughs> he, likes, he likes to just riff on them. I like to riff. I'm a riffer. Our spectacular relationship guru is the relationship advice columnist and author Lindsay King Miller. Using her book, Ask a Queer Chick a guide to sex, love, and life for girls who dig girls. She has been writing an advice column of the same name for the hairpin since 2011 and has contributed to The Cosmopolitan, Bitch Magazine, BuzzFeed, The Toast, and other publications. 
In the introduction, King Miller says that this book is for queer chicks who just need some practical advice about wading into the queer world in a way that fosters confidence, communication, self-advocacy, and living your best life. Last week, we covered the introduction entitled, How Do You Know You're a Queer Chick? Which emphasized the fact that anyone who wonders if they're a queer chick because they are a girl who digs girls gets to be a queer chick. There is no barrier for entry for an identity. Whatever words resonate with you get to be yours. More than that, you get to stop using those words when they no longer resonate with you. Greater than that, you get to say you don't know your identity when you don't know. Nobody else gets to tell you who you are but you. And it's your privilege to find out for the rest of your life. I love that. I love that. Me too. Neither Brad nor I are queer chicks. We both currently identify as heterosexual and cisgendered. But we're like Lindsay King Miller's Aunt Bobby. Straight, but supportive. This week, we're going to cover some of the topics in Chapter 2 of Mullets and Motorcycles, your guide to the subculture. As a straight person, I felt like a real looky-loo reading this chapter because it is really about the signals that queer people are sending each other, which as a straight person and a real respecter of boundaries (laughs) felt kind of like none of my business. But it is a powerful reminder about the function of culture in general. As a straight person, I can really take that for granted. When I was built at the factory, I got what comes standard. There are no upgrades on this model. (laughs) People can safely assume what gender I am, what sexual orientation I am, and when it comes to sex, I'm pretty stoked about regular. (laughs) I'm, of course, being facetious with the words standard and regular because everything is a construct, but it is to my point. When I walk the streets with Brad, people go, this has sex with that, and everyone is cool with it. Or they think we're siblings, which has happened. (laughs) We do, but but I'm sure they're fine with that too. And that is privilege. (laughs) (laughs) I wish with my full heart that everyone enjoyed that same sense of safety but I still benefit from it every day. It's like when I walk into a store, I'm not a talk to the manager type white lady, but, but I know that I benefit from it when it comes to customer service and it sucks for most, but not for me. So King Miller, what is queer culture? Well, it is a culture that was forged in the fire of oppression. Here is a great quote. Through centuries of institutionalized and personal repression, LGBTQ people have had to create a thriving, joyful culture for ourselves outside of the mainstream. Music, writing, fashion, you name it. The more homophobia has tried to squeeze us out, shut us down, and silence us, the more we've responded by carving out our own spaces and making them amazing. King Miller goes on to say that the more accepted and mainstream the queer culture becomes, the harder it is to identify with confidence who the queer people are. The example that she uses is that there is no guarantee that the girl with the undercut and the Slater Kenny t-shirt is gay, which is complicated. 
I know I've 100% been that straight person wandering into gay spaces. Sometimes it's on purpose and sometimes it's not. I've been to drag shows, but only with gay friends. I saw Cameron Esposito and Rio Butcher on their back-to-back tour. I have the t-shirt even. I also <laughs> sad, went to- Sad, <laughs> I no know. together. I only wear it at home, but I do wear it all the time. I also went to see the Scissor Sisters at the 930 Club in college, and I was like, well, this place is full of gay dudes, and I'm delighted. I wish there was some way of recognizing when I'm supporting and when I'm interloping. I mean, I know I'm well-intentioned, but that doesn't mean that I'm right necessarily. Right, yeah. For queer people, King Miller says that there are two important things to keep in mind. The first is that queer culture is optional. The second, that it's powerful. By optional, she means that you don't have to love something just because it's part of queer culture. Her example, you don't have to get a gay haircut or buy a Ducati or listen to Melissa Etheridge. But finding art and artists that you identify with because they're going through the same struggles as you is powerful. And it's that power that creates activism and social change. That is solidarity. So if you are a queer person, don't not experience or express yourself in a certain way because you are afraid it's expected or stereotypical. If you find yourself shying away from something, King Miller encourages you to ask yourself, are you afraid to be stereotypical or visible? A stereotype is the cultural image that someone else puts on you. Like, you're a lesbian? Then you should really stop shaving your legs. Or, I bet you like indigo girls then. It is what King Miller calls the prevailing cultural image. There are a few prevailing cultural images for queer women which tend to fall into three categories, which King Miller calls the butch dyke, excessively masculine, the processing lesbian, excessively emotional, or the radical queer, excessively resistant. All of these are recognized by their transgression. Falling into one of these prevailing cultural images can be dangerous, emotionally and physically, and opens you up to marginalization and discrimination. She goes on to point out that while this will come predominantly from the straight world, it can also happen within the community. There are queer women who give each other grief for looking too queer or not queer enough, which is an unacceptable thing to do. Stereotypes are someone else's standards. It's a box someone is trying to put you in. Visibility is you being your true self and taking part of the culture in the way that resonates with you and makes you feel the most fulfilled and happy. Sometimes what makes you visible does meet someone else's stereotypical standards. Mm, Sure. Like getting a super short haircut or being an activist. But sometimes they won't, and that's fine. King Miller punctuates that thought with this quote. Remember, though, that stereotypes make you visible and visibility matters. As a straight person and a nerd, when I think visibility matters, I think about how important it is to have marginalized characters and creators in movies and books. In comics, there's always been this give and take about what characters Mm. can and should be queer. Yeah, yeah. 
Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy find themselves right in the middle of this argument. And that's how we end up with comics where there is clearly sexual tension between them, but their sexual identity is not explicitly defined. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of characters like this. What immediately jumps into my mind around this right now is what's going on with Jonathan Hickman's X-Men and the relationship of Jean Grey, Wolverine, and Scott Summers, Absolutely, yeah. Where there's a lot of innuendo and suggestion in the background of the story, but nothing's that actually being said. That they might be said. a triad. Yeah, that, that they might be a triad, but nothing's specifically being said in the text. And the way that's being interpreted by comic book geeks, it, you know, it, some people are becoming infuriated. Some people love it. And, and you know, people are fractioning out uh, based on this very thinly veiled idea that Jonathan Hickman is putting out there. And there are other characters who, at their original conception, either didn't have a sexual identity or were straight that have come up later, like Iceman. Yeah, right, exactly, which was very bizarre and complicated because of how Brian Bendis was dealing with time travel and bringing Iceman from the past into the future and coming out in the future where the future Iceman was not out of the closet. Oh, comics. I think about the character of Sulu in the Star Trek films and in the J.J. Abrams versions where... I mean, I guess that character came out of the closet. He was seen holding hands with another man and they had a daughter between them, maybe. You know, the producers would say like, yes, he's out of the closet, but the film doesn't really do the work uh, or, or really show any actual homosexuality with that character. Like, it's a very timid presentation. But it was enough to infuriate George Takei. Yeah, and a lot of people, but even Takei has come back on that a little bit. You know, I, I don't know, like... My frustration is, is comes from how Harley and Ivy were seen in the Terry Dodson, Carl Kessel run, where there was a lot of innuendo, uh, but not, there's no real relationship there, right? And in the New 52 version that we get here, there's a little more, but it's still not as like, you know, it's still not as much of a relationship as I would like to be like to see it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the fans would like to see it. And I just wonder where that comes from. Well, where what comes from? Where the, how come they don't cross the line? Is oh, that like, well, it's I like a it's fun corporate. game? I mean, yeah, no, corporate. Warner Brothers owns DC Comics, AT&T. It's AT&T. You know, like the, the, they, the, the people who are publishing these things, you know, Harley Quinn became a massive uh, IP as one thing, as the Joker's girlfriend. And so any kind of deviation from the original concept takes decades in comics and not just in their sexuality, but in all manner of things, like just in superpowers evolving, it takes forever for any kind of actual change to happen in comics. Unless you want to put her in a crop top. Unless you want to put her in a crop top. Yeah, 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 yeah. King Miller does point out some of the other benefits of visibility other than cultural advocacy and solidarity. You also get a lot more dates in the queer community if your queerness can be spotted from across a room. Queer chicks generally want to avoid openly hitting on straight chicks, but there are a lot of options when it comes to appearing queer, way more than just butch and femme. And odds are, if you are a queer chick, there will be something that suits you. King Miller, for example, has always loved having what she calls long mermaid hair. Though there is a prevailing cultural standard that queer women have short hair, but she found an option that suits her and still signals that she's queer, which is an asymmetrical haircut with one shaved side. Also, when you're less queer presenting, you are put in the position of having to come out 
all the time in casual conversations, which can be awkward and a pain. King Miller admits that there are some points in the pro column for being more femme and less visible. Butch lesbians have to take more guff from ignorant, intolerant people, which sucks. But, and this is wild to me, even the butchest of lesbians still get mistaken for straight. King Miller's partner is a faux hawk having, motorcycle riding, best buttoning lesbian, and she still occasionally gets mistaken for straight. So there is really no point to adjusting how you appear to meet someone else's expectations. Caveat, which King Miller acknowledges, unless you are in a place where looking on the outside of how you are on the inside threatens your job security or personal safety. We wish we were in a society where everyone benefits from the same privileges that I, Lisa Gullickson, have, but we're just not there yet. Ugh. There is so much more wonderfulness in this chapter. I learned a lot about how queer people can find other queers or start having their own queer community. And there is even a section about how queer communities can be more inclusive to trans women. But I've gone on long enough. All I can say is if these topics intrigue you, get this book. It's fascinating, it's compassionately written and, and super entertaining. I think there is only one other piece of practical advice that I want to highlight before I move on, and that is it is important for a person entering the queer community for the first time to focus on building your community and finding your people first before finding someone to hug and kiss and mm, get in a relationship mm. yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so few people find their forever partner, if that's what you're looking for, on the first try. And when you get your heart broken by the queer chick of your dreams, you'll want the support of some really good friends who understand what you're, what you're going through. Reading Road Trippin' with this chapter in mind, I find myself focusing on how Harley and Ivy present themselves to the world and how they choose to present themselves and when, and how they address when their signals are being misread. Also, with Catwoman, they provide a judgment-free space where they can really be themselves. Also, I think we definitely want to talk about how this book both acknowledges but somehow skirts full visibility yeah. when it comes to these characters' queerness. We definitely queerness. have to. Absolutely. So I think we're ready to get into it. All right, let's get into it. The Harley Quinn Road Trip Special, published in September of 2015, so a little more than a year into the Palmiati and Connor run of the character. There are a ton of artists who worked on this particular storyline. We're talking about Brett Blevins, Moritat, Flaviano, Armentaro, Pasquale, Qualano, and Jed Doherty. Did I get all those pronunciations right? Probably no, not. Absolutely not, and I apologize. Uh, most of these guys ink their own work, but Mike Manley hops in there for assistance in that arena. Uh, Paul Mounts is the colorist, and Dave Sharp is the letterer. Here is the basic plot of the issue, courtesy of Goodreads. Thank you, Goodreads. Thank you, Goodreads. It's the great American summer tradition, but you've never seen a road trip quite like this before. 
Harley, Ivy, and Catwoman are burning rubber across the U.S. of A. We recommend you all stay off the roads for the month of August just to be safe. They use a very loose definition of plot summary on Goodreads. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a taste. And if you want the full meal, you got to dive in. And that's what that first page does, right? That splash is a hell of a splash. And once you see that splash, the idea is you got to keep reading. This Splash page is intentionally set to like establish a tone. We are here to see some skin. Uh, yeah, yes, we're here to see some skin. Some lady shapes. We get lady shapes, but you know, it's also setting up the fact that Harley Quinn can pop in at any moment, breaking the fourth wall and saying like, hey, we understand that this is a cheesecake splash, um, but we're here to grab new readers with a little TNA, and then we're gonna get back into the story. It, we're gonna flash back into how Harley, Ivy, and Catwoman all ended up on top of this upturned uh, caravan sunbathing in the middle of the desert. I also appreciate how Harley's little pop-in is an opportunity for the writer to give a little love to the artist. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then later we'll see this as the artist, uh, as the writer taking a little dig at himself, yeah. which I find super fun. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And I like the way... Harley's fourth wall breaking is starting to evolve in the New 52 versus what we saw in the Carl Kessel, Terry Dodson run, where there was a little fourth wall breaking, but not much. I think that is an element that you could push further. Um, you know, it's something that you see a lot in Deadpool comics, and often people refer to Harley Quinn as like the Deadpool of DC. And that's maybe a little unfair, but I understand why that comparison is made. To me, I feel like before, uh, and the Carl Kessel run, the fourth wall breaking was more experimental and spontaneous, where I feel like this fourth wall breaking is much more structured, which I find maybe a little less exciting because it feels less like off the cuff. Well, I think the reason you feel that way is because they're breaking the fourth wall to give you a very traditional narrative structure, right? Like we're getting, this is where we're gonna end up, but now we're gonna flash back. It is a, a thing you see a lot in comic books and something that we see all the time in movies. It's something that Breaking Bad did with every episode practically. And you know, we just had this conversation on the In the Mouth of Darkness we podcast did. about the movie Extraction and how frustrated we were with the narrative flashback tool being used there, where that film opens up with Chris Hemsworth on the bridge. He's in the middle of a firefight. He looks like he's gonna die. Now let's flash back 48 hours to see how he got to this point. Well, it's literally, if we go through a stack of our Wednesday floppies, I will say two thirds of them start with, Spider-Man, he's all beat up and laying on the ground eight hours before, and then you read, yeah. and, you, and everyone is creating that circle, which, I, can be done very well, but when you're reading it and it's every single floppy, it can feel kind I, of I'm, tired. I'm, I'm absolutely tired with with it. Uh, in this case, however, though, Lisa, because of the added bonus of the fourth wall breaking and this cheeky, cheesecakey splash page that we're given with the three uh, Gotham City sirens uh, in their teeny, eeny, itsy, bitsy uh, bikinis. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's fun and it's in tone with what we're going to read, which is a road trip special. I think that's absolutely true. Though it does trigger one of my pet peeves of if you're doing something cliche or you're doing something obvious, but then 
you make a joke about it, does that make it not cliche and obvious? I'm not sure. I think it's still cliche and obvious, but it's fun. Because, like, look, Lisa, we've got three lovely ladies. We do. Wearing thematic bikinis. How fun is that? I love it. You know, they take their concepts to their core. They're not going to wear anything that doesn't speak to their style. Catwoman's got the cat eyes on her tushy. Uh, uh, Ivy has the little leaves on, on her on her boobies. And then uh, <laughs> Harley Quinn has, you know, the, uh, the what are those poker symbols? What do you call those Diamonds. Uh, the, the diamonds, yeah. The diamonds on her bits. Suits. The word we're looking for is suits. Yes, yes. Looking yes. at all of these voluptuous hourglassed ladies gets my head all fuzzy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we turn the page and we go back to Coney Island and we get to see Harley Quinn in her profession as a psychiatrist. I find this to be a very interesting transition, getting to see Harley in her bikini with her... Um, playing card symbols that she feels like, I feel like each one of these ladies in their bikinis is expressing something they feel is essential to themselves. Catwoman is always wearing something cat related. Poison Ivy always has to represent the green and represent the plant world that she feels so rooted in. And Harley needs to express her Harlequin nature, um, especially in this new 50 version, she comes across as a little punk rock, a little bit... Um, She's a trickster figure. Yeah, well, it goes back to um, the idea of most stereotypes go back to something that's considered transgressive. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. she's representing something transgressive with her Harlequin look. Well, and she's also breaking free from her previous Harlequin look, which was more attached to the Joker. Right, absolutely. So when we turn the page... And we see her as Dr. Quinzel and talking to one of her patients at the nursing home. She is not representing that side of herself in any way, shape, or form. She's embracing the uh, secret identity situation. So yeah. would you call this a secret identity or would you call this code switching? Uh, I mean, may, uh, code switching is interesting. I certainly think... Uh, when when she is in the psychiatrist mode, when she's in Dr. Quinzel mode, she is representing a part of herself. Right. I think Harley Quinn has is more is more multifaceted than even Selena Kyle and Pamela Isley. Or like Batman. When Batman is putting on Bruce Wayne, the playboy, that's a complete fictionalization. Yeah. And that is a behavior he's putting on to disassociate. Bruce Wayne from Batman, or even we just rewatched all of the Superman movies and we were watching Christopher Reeve play Superman versus the bumbling, clumsy yeah. Clark Kent, where like it got to the point where his bumbliness was starting to feel kind antagonistic. of- Antagonistic. Yeah, like, <laughs> like he's like, he could, I mean, he could make his human side of himself. Like, is this how he sees human beings as constantly well, that's dropping the Kill their Bill thing, you know, right? glasses that's, or whatever? That's what Tarantino says. And it's it's a fun way to look at the Christopher Reeve, Richard Donner movie and go like, there's something a little malicious about <laughs> the Clark Kent personality, especially how it's kind of weaponized against Lois Lane. <laughs> but here we see Harley Quinn dressed for work, 
like she's she's not wearing anything that represents that other part of herself. But then we see her fully enjoying being a therapist and giving heartfelt advice to her patient. Yeah, I mean, the advice is a little twisted. It's a little bent from what you might get from another uh, psychiatrist. But it's also uh, like, I mean, it's you can't you can't uh, hate on her for it. Uh, what she is telling. So what the patient's issue is, she is getting in arguments with another one of the patients. And what Harley says to do is put yourself in the other person's shoes. Like that other person is probably dealing with her own issues of growing older. Yeah, to be, okay. So I guess what I'm referring to mostly is the fact that if this person doesn't follow uh, your advice, then I'll pop over there with a flamethrower. And she's, and then the, the the patient's like, oh, he, he, he. Yeah, she but, takes it out as a joke. But you go as a reader, you're like, oh no, she's going to bring a flamethrower. <laughs> I would love to see that. I would, I think that there, I, I wonder if there are more like, um, old person home Harley hijinks. I would love to see some of that. I would, I would, I would, I really want to go back and read the entirety of the Palmiotti and Connor run of oh, Harley absolutely. Quinn to see how the psychiatrist persona is used throughout it. So when we get done with this episode, I'm going to continue. I'm going to start from the new 52 number one and go all the way through their rebirth. Cause I think I like the handle they have on this character. Same here. And then later we get to see her on the phone with her mother. And so her mother is clearly associates her daughter more with this look, the kind of sexy therapist, successful lady that she is. So d does her mother ever get to see her in her Harley drag or no? I, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I, that's something we'll have to explore when we do a full read of the Palmiotti and Connor run. But that's definitely something I never thought about a villain like Harley Quinn having a mom and having a brother and having these close family ties. Well, they couldn't explore it in the previous versions of this character before the New 52 reboot because she was very much Dr. Harley Quinzel, the cracked psychiatrist who became Joker's girlfriend. Right, but I just, I really admire her ability to compartmentalize. And like, so like if I do something that borderlines on what I would consider villainous for myself, like, you know, I blow off a friend to go hang out or, um, you know, I tell a little white lie. My guilt says I am a terrible person <laughs> as, in my entirety. Like <laughs> I falter off what I think is like the straight and narrow path and I go, well, that reflects on everything that I am. Where Harley Quinn can go like, I'm a really wonderful daughter. I'm a really wonderful niece. When I'm at work, working with my patients at the old folks home, I'm an amazing, empathetic therapist. And then when I'm Harley Quinn, I am like literally the most spontaneous, evil, chaotic person. And she can love herself in all of her iterations. Yeah, I don't, I, I would say that the persona, uh, even her Harley Quinn persona as seen in this lens, in this version of the character, I would not attribute the word evil with her. I would say um, morally corrupt or bent or uh, unlawful, but I would not use the word evil. Each one, uh, like, 
the pair of Harley and Ivy is very interesting because Ivy in particular has an idealism Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where she really does feel like she is working towards the common good and the the common being plants. Oh, and earth and the earth, Earth, yeah, planet earth. Um, Harley believes in love and believes in people. And so she like, she wants to operate so that love prevails in all things. Um, Catwoman, she just likes to steal stuff. I don't know what her well, deal is. Well, I think is. Catwoman's a little more selfish than the other two. Like mm-hmm. she's about, you know, making sure that she is comfortable and well off, and she does have human connections. She clearly uh, loves and admires her two friends, these uh, these other members of her Gotham City Sirens, and she clearly has some sort of pleasant reaction to the character of Batman that she uh, willingly um, emotes or vibes that, that, that Harley and uh, Pamela pick up on and tease her about a little bit. Yeah. But I think that the Catwoman character is inherently a little more selfish than the other two. And I just want to differentiate the, you know, villainy from evil, you know, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Catwoman, they uh, act as, in villainy, they perform illegal actions, but they're not evil in the way that, say, the Joker is evil. But I'm wondering is if you took any villain, including the Joker, and you contextualized everything from his point of view, mm. we could easily go, Joker has things that he does believe in. He does have an ideal that he is working towards and then does his villainy in service to that. Yeah. And, and so he, to yeah. me, like, any villain could be empathized with because we are all subject to the human condition. Well, and what's cool about a character like Harley Quinn and her popularity is that it gives the reader space to explore this point of view empathetically. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Doom and the Joker, they they get solo titles every now and again, um, but they usually don't last long. And here we are with Harley Quinn, who's had one solo series before this one and gets a hundred pages from this point of view. Like that's really unique within superhero comics. What I find fascinating about her though is what is the perfect balance of villainy and empathy? Where, and how long can you maintain that for an audience before you just end up making Harley Quinn like any other superhero character? Anti-hero, yeah. yeah. On this same theme that we're talking about, the first time we see Ivy, so on the phone with her mom, her mom tells her, you need to go to L.A. to pick up your Uncle Louie's ashes. She's sad. She loved Uncle Louie. Um, but she's going to make this a huge road road trip for her and her two best girlfriends. Okay, so she's calling Ivy to see if she wants to do a road trip. And Ivy has is in fisticuffs with Batman. And she's got this one building all covered in vines. And what they're arguing about is, like, the reason she's covering this particular building in vines is to counteract the urban heat island effect. So uh, Gotham City, getting way too hot. We got to throw some plants down. And Batman is stopping her from planting plants. Yeah. Which seems kind of small potatoes for Batman, 
Like, granted, like, it's not her building, and that is her his entire argument with her. Well, you gotta remember, you know, Batman's built a mighty grudge over decades of fighting with Poison Ivy. <laughs> but at the same time, there's literally in Gotham, yeah. nothing, like, nobody's being actively murdered. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Like, and she even says, you know, my vines are actually reinforcing this building. This building will last longer, and this building is safer because of my actions. So just back off, because this is not planned out through some committee and through the proper channels you're mad at me but that's ridiculous and i think it's hilarious if you look at this scene mm-hmm. and lisa and i we've been rereading alan moore's saga oh, yeah. of the swamp thing right and we just finished uh that that gotham issue where swamp thing behaves exactly the way poison ivy would behave in that situation but he manages to bring all of gotham city to a halt and you see people everybody react differently where some people are loving the fact that the air smells cleaner there's outdoor spaces people are just eating beautiful plants right off of the vine but batman is there going being a government stooge yeah being a total stooge and all all swamp thing wants is his wife back yeah. i think it's gr- it's, it was perfect that we were rereading those issues at the time that we were exploring Poison Ivy as a character because you come away from looking at Poison Ivy through the lens of Swamp Thing and you go, these people, they just want what's best for our planet. And if our planet's doing well, we'll do better. Yeah, but like in this context... Poison Ivy just seems like a nuisance to me. And why is Batman even bothering? Well, I think it's it's certainly setting Poison Ivy up as less of a villainous character, uh, traditionally villainous character. And I I kind of like that she's, uh, you know, everything she's saying, you go like, yeah, uh-huh. I'm on team the green. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Catwoman is not being recontextualized in any way. No, right? no. Like Selena Kyle is in her apartment listening to Tom Jones singing Pussycat, Pussycat, I Love You. Uh, she's lounging around in her uh, cat panties with many cats around her, and she's ogling this uh, stunning necklace. And it just so happens that when Harley calls her up to bring her on this adventure uh, to collect her uncle's ashes, this stunning necklace will be on the other side of the country too. And it'll give her an opportunity to snatch this thing. But there is in my mind, a slight recontextualization because she's not stealing it from the museum. She's stealing it from dark wolf. (laughs) So she's only stealing something that's already been stolen. Uh, Yes. Yes. And and again, so that doesn't make her that much of a villain. And then she ends up, just wanting to sell it back yeah, yeah, so yeah. that she makes money off of it. So she still is not like, she's really just being um, industrious. She's not being particularly villainous. Can we take a moment to talk about Dark Wolf for a second? Yes, please. I, he hasn't technically showed up yet, uh, but Dark Wolf is the most insane character. Uh, you know, he was a Syrian terrorist who apparently tried to start a war in Egypt, uh, but his plans were foiled by Catwoman. Okay, all right? okay. I, I have not read those issues. I don't really know how they were foiled, but they were foiled. Uh, and then Catwoman's panther scratches Dark Wolf on the face, forcing the man to wear a wolf's mask to hide his scars. I hate that. I hate that when I have a like a maybe some kind of blemish on my face and I am forced to wear a wolf mask. <laughs> like, like there are band-aids, there are like other facial appliances you could use. He's like, no, 
I got I now have a theme. I am Dark Wolf. I haven't been able to get my eyebrows done because of the current pandemic, and so I am forced to wear a wolf mask. <laughs> <laughs> so I really enjoy Dark Wolf's presence, and what a buffoon he is in this. I love book. that he's a buffoon, and we're all making light. But in reality, well, in comic book reality, he's, he's a, a terrorist. A Syrian terrorist. Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. All right. All right. All right. Uh, thank you for acknowledging my, uh, how weird Dark Wolf is. Just looking at Catwoman, and she is just literally covered in cats. And I love cats. I have friends with multiple cats. But I don't understand why, like, one of the major characteristics of Catwoman is that she is not, like, slave to her cats because of toxoplasmosis. <laughs> Lisa, they're not going to introduce toxic plasmosis it is, to a sexy Catwoman character. But it is literally one of the most fascinating parasites that <laughs> exist because, like— Mice with toxoplasmosis are, like, super docile. <laughs> but, Lisa, we're supposed to be, like, it's like attracted a, to Catwoman. If she is infected with a parasite, uh, we, we don't know. That's not she, Well, no. I mean, she's surely infected with that parasite. But we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> because, like, there's no way that she's just not breathing fecal, cat fecal oh, air constantly. Oh, well, let's get out of this, uh, th this environment of Catwoman's. Let's go to the airport where we see... The reunion of Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy. Yes, Poison Ivy and Catwoman, they landed at LAX first, so they decided to hang out so they could surprise Harley when she arrives at her gate. And Harley has genuine love for these people. You see her literally jump for joy at the sight of them. And then we get this sweet panel where Harley is embracing Ivy at, while Catwoman is holding up her legs. And um, clearly, poor Selena is the third wheel on oh. this little <laughs> friendship road trip. Because uh, Ivy gets the full uh, burst of the hug. Yeah, and she's just getting the business end of the hug. Uh, she's cat, getting yeah. some feet in her face yeah, is what yeah, she gets. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, the, the, there's a little, something a little bit more between Ivy and Harley. Which happens in any, like, it's it's hard to find three people who all love each other equally all of the time. And then later, like, Catwoman ditches them anyway because they are staying at this super sweet hotel that actually Catwoman made the reservation which is was very sweet and kind of her, but I think she made the reservation because of proximity to the necklace. So um, we see uh, Harley and Poison Ivy dancing on this rooftop club, and it's so loud that Harley, to speak to Ivy, has to whisper in her ear, and so she's like whispering in her ear, like, "Do you know where Selena is?" And then uh, she also asks the question. Do my lips tickle when I'm whispering in your ear, yeah, Poison there's, Ivy? There's a little sexual tension there. Yeah, but then, of course, what uh, Ivy hears is, are your tips pickled? <laughs> and then what do we get? Catwoman, she's in the process of stealing the necklace from Dark Wolf, who, again, buffoon, in his underwear, uh, admiring his body and the way that the necklace uh, you know, shines off of his body. Here comes Catwoman. And how does Catwoman defeat Dark Wolf? She gets a stake and throws it out the window and says, fetch, 
and he does so. And it's a really fancy steak. It's yeah, it's like wagyu beef. And so so Dark Wolf, he really is like canine. You know, he can't resist a T-bone. He can't. And uh, he throws himself out a window. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very uh, um, wily coyote. Yeah, it's more coyote than wolf at this point. I have not read much Dark Wolf, if anything, outside of this comic. Uh, but I want more dumb Dark Wolf content. To me, I just think that's a tremendous uh, investment on Catwoman's part to buy the nicest steak for this guy. Well, you know, if you're going to throw a man to his death, maybe. And then you are going to sell the necklace at some kind of profit. You you can get you can you can afford to toss a, a little last beef meal. around. You know, if you're going to have a last meal, it should be a good one. Well, that's very considerate of her, I guess. When Selena goes back to the rooftop party, she doesn't tell Harley and Ivy what she's up to, and that's one of the things that I talked about when we were doing Batman and Catwoman as a couple. Why Bat? man and Catwoman could never work is that Catwoman is in love with having secrets Mm. and she can never be fully vulnerable with anybody. And I think that's what also creates distance between her and and her two friends because she can't resist doing something that her friends don't know about. Yeah, no full disclosure. And it's not like when it becomes necessary to divulge that she stole the necklace when Dark Wolf comes after them later. They're not like, you trollop. How dare you do something without us? They're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, oh, Catwoman. Yeah, she has a fear of intimacy that I think she needs to work on. Well, hopefully that gets taken care of in the new Batman Catwoman series that Tom King's writing where... Catwoman is pregnant with Bruce Wayne's baby. <gasps> Gasp. But Catwoman does come back to the party after she has her encounter with Dark Wolf. And, you know, she has a great time. The three of them all have a great time. They throw each other into the pool. And the next morning, they are dealing with one heck of a hangover. Or Harley is dealing with, a, a like, a, one heck of a hangover. And the other two women are functioning. Yeah, yeah, like we yeah. get this great image of Catwoman putting mascara on with her cute little kitty panty being checked out, obviously, by Poison Ivy, who is coming out of the shower and has barely covered herself with a towel. Meanwhile, Harley is drinking Alka-Seltzer sitting on the toilet. The camera cuts to... Poison Ivy's face where she's talking about, oh, along our our route, I've pointed out some places at the map where I would like to stop, but that's not what that panel is really about. What that panel (laughs) really is about is that we get a shot of the bed, which has been obviously wrecked. Uh, Destroyed. Uh, We see claw marks all over the place. There's a upsetting to me as an emetophobe green... Situation, yeah. And clearly they've had quite a night together as has that bed. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to point out too and how it's not really fully addressed outside of the art because when you turn to the next page and how they deal with the hangover is they go to Murder Burgers with their cabbie and we have this sequence where the cabbie says something pretty profane to Harley in her ear and then we have an interesting fourth wall break. Right, and uh, Poison Ivy asks Harley what 
he said, and she says, I quote, something the internet outrage junkies would be totally fuming about for a month, but only mildly pissed me off. Meanwhile, he's on fire and she has punted him through the murder burger side. Yeah, and so what I think is interesting about that, Lisa, is how this comic is certainly pushing boundaries and wants to go further than uh, the average DC book may want, may be allowed to go. And so it's like trying to, you know, have its cake and eat it too situation. Yeah, I feel like it's not as much pushing boundaries as pointing at a boundary, going like that's where the boundary yeah, is point. all of the time. I imagine like a preteen, teenage reader being really titillated by oh, that sure. boundary. Oh, yeah. Because I remember that age where, like, you were intrigued by the ideas of sex and violence, but you're not a thousand percent ready. Well, we talked a little bit about that if you go back all the way to our second episode in discussing Scott and Gene as seen in those X Factor issues, mm -hmm. those first six issues, and how the sexuality around, you know, Scott and Maddie and Jean and, and and Warren and his lady, I can't remember her name at the moment, and those construction workers, yeah. right? Like the, the comics have always, or for a long time, have come right up to the edge of R-rated sexuality, uh, especially in the big two. And, and part of the appeal is that boundary pushing. But... We are post-comics code. If I want to be at the other side of that boundary, I have a lot of comics sure. I can go to. Sure. I sure. can go to Preacher. I can go to Saga. So to me, like pointing at the boundary feels a little bit childish or a little bit like, like you said, having your cake and eating it too. But I also think that what is happening over the course of the New 52 Harley Quinn, especially in terms of the relationship of Harley and Ivy, is that they are uh, not so much like tearing down that boundary, but they're building an idea of what their relationship actually is in the reader because the publisher doesn't really feel comfortable yet going, yes, they are a lesbian couple. But also I'm sure that they're building a case yeah, for yeah, finally a case, yes. having a full-on lesbian out moment because they can say, look at this audience we have that is primed for it. Look at this slash fiction. Look at these tweets. Like, we want to see these characters in their full lesbian glory. Yeah, the fans want this, and so we are going to innuendo it until we no longer need to innuendo it, and we can just do it. It's just a chiseling. It's a chiseling away at an old-fashioned way of thinking about comic. Well, and also what we've been talking about is how, you know, the character was established as Joker's girlfriend. The character was established as the mall, and Palmiotti and Connor are trying to take her into a different arena. And taking characters that are established one way in multiple mediums, video games, cartoons, comic books, and then going, they can actually be something else. They can do other things. They can meet other people. They can be with other people. That is a tremendous work. Like that takes tremendous yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. There is one more thing I want to say about the interaction with the cabbie and uh, an interaction that we actually skipped from the party scene. And it's how these women react when their signals are being misread. So at the case of the party, there was this kind of um, Hollywood 
gym rat. Oh, right. Hitting on them and going like, I'm famous. You want to hang out with me? They were like, no, no, thank you. And they rebuffed him several times. And then Catwoman came up and punched him in the face. And here we have uh, the cabbie who is misreading their signals of them having him e- eat with them. And um, and he feels like this is a safe place where he can say something dirty into one of their ears. And that was not the case. He should have asked consent before saying something like that. And uh, she responds with violence and thro- sets him on fire and throws him through some signage. And I think that that is... An interesting discussion of what to do when your signals, your outside signals are being misidentified. Yeah, well, I mean, in their case, because of who they are, they're going to respond violently and powerfully, right? Right. I think you do need to respond in that moment when your signals are being misread. Right, and especially when someone is insisting upon going like, well, your outsides are telling me this. So how dare your outsides tell me this yeah. when your your insides are telling yeah, me that? Yeah, super gross behavior. Yes. So it's kind of cathartic to see a character like Harley Quinn punch a dude through a murder burger sign. Especially someone who uh, points out how they are eating. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I picked up on that too. Because what does he say? He says something along the lines of... It's nice to have lunch with ladies with ap- actual appetites. Yeah, yeah. And I remember back... Well, uh, I've been fairly open on this podcast. I'm an eating disorder survivor. So I have a lot of issues when it comes to food. But I remember when I was dating, way overthinking what I was ordering to the point where... When I would go on dates, I would order first and order the thing that I thought my date would order. Mm -hmm. So I was changing like what my appetite wanted to match the person that I was going out on a date with. And it was just like so insane. This character, the cabbie, he's responding because he's grown up in a culture of Carl's Jr. uh, burger ads, right? Where you see like the hot women in bikinis chowing down on, you know, a double patty bacon burger. Right. And, uh, you know, like, I'm glad this dude gets thrown through a side. It's hard enough to be a woman nourishing herself when it feels like what a woman puts in her body is open to discussion. Like, I think about all of the times we've seen in movies or in commercials, these incredibly thin women eating some kind of sloppy joe or eating a huge burger and it being commented on of how sexy it is that she's eating a burger, the implication being that her sexiness is natural and she comes by it honestly. Whereas a woman who orders a salad with dressing on the side and no croutons is seen as persnickety and controlling and unsexy. Yeah, the Harry when Harry met Sally syndrome. Exactly. I remember at the height of my disorder, I had like a bit, a conversation that I would have all of the time wishing that there were stalls for eating in since there are stalls for going to the bathroom in. Like, and that was the level of shame I felt about putting things in my body. Mm -hmm. And it's comments like this, and the culture that create comments like the cabbie makes is 
um, is something that now we're railing against. Well, and you, it, when you see this in this book, it also takes you back to all those horrible feelings you were experiencing I, in your youth. I think there are a lot of women who can relate to uh, this moment and would also want to kick that cabbie through a billboard. Yeah, yeah. From there, we finally get Uncle Louie's ashes from his next-door neighbor, Sheila. And what's interesting about the sequence is they all show up in a different cab, uh, but in full regalia. Or at least Harley Quinn is in Harley Quinn attire. She's not in a disguise. Which tells me that there is more to her character or the way that she presents herself than I'm being Harley Quinn I'm being Harleen Quinzel. Or, and certainly in terms of her relationship with Uncle Louie. Do you think that Uncle Louie knew that she was Harley I Quinn? Know. I don't know. I don't know. She's certainly not disguising herself in any fashion. Now, she's not running around in a jester costume, but I think anybody who drove by and had any understanding of uh, what's going on in the superhero community of America and the supervillain community of America would recognize her as Harley Quinn. I think that now she's not putting on the jester costume. It's way more gray when she is being Harleen Quinzel and when she is being Harley Quinn and when she's being something in between. Yeah, because uh, yeah. she assumes she's not recognizable enough that... Sheila won't show up. Won't recognize her. Or the cops won't show up. Yeah. yeah. Well, we don't really know what her relationship with Sheila is or Louie, right? Like beyond what is in this issue. I think this is just speaking to the idea that we have not read the rest of the run and we don't have a total understanding of this version of Harley Quinn and her relationship with Quinzel versus Quinn. All I know is that when she talked to her mom on the phone, she talked about being a therapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Harley does have a really beautiful and open and honest conversation with Sheila about her Uncle Louie, which shows me that when she is dressed as Harley Quinn, she is her true and complete self. And that's what she wanted to present to Sheila, where... Harleen Quinzel has walls up. Yeah, and, you know, with the ashes, we can now kind of enter the last phase of this comic book. Uh, they run through Las Vegas. Which, where we get a really fun panel of all of the friends that they made on their two days in Vegas. And it makes me think about um, King Miller talking about creating your community wherever you are. They clearly have no trouble finding their people. And their people includes uh, a lion tamer. Yeah, an and Elvis a, impersonator. A bunch of girls in bikinis. Showgirls. A full-on Eskimo. Yeah. Little yeah. persons with a boa constrictor. Well, all kinds of body shapes, right? Yeah. I, I think I think that's really, really cool. I, I, I love this community. I love how free and warm and loving this moment is. And then that party concludes and Ivy, Harley, and Selena finish their night together in the trailer with a little game of truth or dare. And things get a little bit sexy. More innuendos. Uh, we have Catwoman trying to get to the bottom of what it's like to ki to kiss, I almost said kill, ooh, Freudian slip, <laughs> uh. to kiss Batman. 
Yeah, and it's it's worth noting this is a few years before the big wedding issue that happens in the Tom King run. I think it's three years before that happens. Uh-huh. It's hard to believe, though, that until this point, Catwoman has never kissed. But it's New 52. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's New 52, yeah. And then we have... Poison Ivy playing the rules very close because when she is dared to strip naked, run outside the trailer and bark like a dog, she's like, that's technically, that's three dares. And so she chooses the get naked one. And we get, I love the expression. We get this really beautiful uh, behind shot of Poison Ivy's hourglass figure stripping off her very, her negligee and Harley Quinn and uh, Catwoman really getting amused. Well, well, look at the expressions, right? Like, so Selena's expression is a little, like, bashful, whereas Harley's expression is like, yeah, give give me some of that. And then as we, uh, oh, and then they dare Harley to stay quiet for 15 minutes. She lasts three, which was good for her, I thought. Yeah, I think that's a fun panel moment. What is that? That's uh, eight panels, seven panels Mm -hmm. of uh, Harley trying to contain herself. I know. The the facial expressions are so cute. (laughs) Um, But then the next morning, we have another um, innuendo-laden moment where where, uh, Poison Ivy wakes up and she's like, how did you two get in my bed? And (laughs) am I allowed to put my clothes on yet? You know, like, why put your clothes on? We're all girlfriends here. So clearly stuff is happening between everyone. Uh, And I I guess to go back to our our previous point the book is only as dirty as you want it to be right? exactly exactly and in my imagination this is rated sexy yeah yeah we're cbcc so this is definitely an x-rated comic in our heads <laughs> <laughs> um then we finally get our confrontation with dark wolf so i want to talk about this battle between the three of them and dark wolf you know it climaxes with, you know, this is how that trailer gets turned upside down, knocked off the road. Um, But there is a brawl between Harley and Dark Wolf, and Harley breaks off two arms of a cactus and uses them as boxing gloves to beat Dark Wolf unconscious. Well, uh, to me, the way I interpreted these panels is Dark Wolf, they drive Dark Wolf off the road, and he hits a cactus. So Harley doesn't actually injure the plant. Yeah, I think that the plant's arms got knocked off and we see Poison Ivy looking at the at the cactus and going like, "Oh, poor baby." But how do you think Ivy responds to To her? me, that's like if um they saw a you know, a person get murdered and then they took the limp dead arms of the murderer and then <laughs> of the victim and then beat the murderer with them. And that's okay in, in Ivy's book. <laughs> I, su- I like, I suppose. I, I do like the idea of cactus boxing gloves. I imagine that would be quite painful. Like it's like the man with the iron fists. And we do see there's a lot of saliva laden blood spatter. I mean, he, yeah, uh, he survives. The they, well, we assume he survives. Selena then drags him out to be eaten by the coyotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get back to that splash page and the fourth wall moment where uh, the three of them are sunbathing on the uh, the trailer. And we get the uh, Harley looking through her little fourth wall, wall porthole saying like, look, they just cut and pasted the text, but we get to see the bikinis at a whole new angle. And now that the loop has been closed of this structure, we can get to the end of this comic. And where they go from here is they do a little hitchhiking. 
Um, they don't trust cabbies anymore, so they might as well go with full-on strangers. And they are picked up by a, a Native American guy. And, of course, he has, like, a whole trunk load full of fire water. So, of course, when it comes to, like, sexually explicit content, they will shy away. But when it comes to politically incorrect <laughs> content... Oh, don't be one of those internet outragers, Lisa. Uh, I can uh, hardly help myself. What, so this fire water is, like, laced with ayahuasca or something. Yeah, and they, and they have, like, some kind of... They go on a little unexpected vision quest. Well, or at least two of them, Lisa, because Catwoman is denied the, the pages for her vision. We are only gifted uh, Harley's vision and Poison Ivy's vision. Yeah, because she she smelt, sniffs the bottle and is like, this smells like a bad idea. So Harley, uh, her trip involves a swimming pool and she's high up on the diving board. Do we know who this blonde woman is? I certainly don't recognize her. I mean, she's called Miss Minnie and she's wearing like a iron cross on her neck. So she's some kind of Nazi. And this Miss Minnie is coaching her to jump, but she feels like she can't because... Uh, everyone is watching, and we have a cut of Mr. Miracle and the Atom and Wonder Woman and Dark Side all looking up at her in fear. Yeah, and the way I read that is it's, it's basically like a classic anxiety dream, right? Oh, absolutely. I have them literally every morning. <laughs> when she jumps, though, the pool is not full of water, but green jello. And we discover that as Harley is having this dream, She's therapizing it herself. So she goes like, well, I recognize why I'm jumping into Jell-O. Clearly, this has something to do with work because I work at an old folks home where a lot of Jell-O is served. Then uh, we have a giant poison ivy going to eat that Jell-O and she's and Harley Quinn is really enjoying it. Huh, <laughs> that tickles. Watch me quiver. See me shiver. And then she goes inside Ivy. She's inside the stomach of Ivy. And there's a Mad Hatter type feast going on where she starts transforming into the turkey and everybody starts eating her flesh until she is just Harley head on a skeleton. And then we get another little pointed jab at body culture where it says, wow, a cannibal dinner is a quick way to lose weight. Supermodels take note. Yuck, 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 yuck. And then uh, she becomes death with a scythe and she chops everybody's head off. Good vision. A, a plus. What does it mean? <laughs> and then this, we go into Poison Ivy's vision and she's back at Gotham with another confrontation with Batman or literally just a bat like man. And this gives me more flashbacks to Swamp Thing, Alan Moore, yep. when Swamp Thing transformed Gotham into a jungle wonderland. I'm telling you, Lisa, Team the Green. Yes. During this dream, she is clutching a white cat. And I think this vision reveals that she does feel a little bit of competitiveness. With Catwoman? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as she's doing her Gotham transformation, she feels the cat watching her. Not in like a suspicious way, but in an I'd like to please you way. But Ivy should not really fear any competition because even in her dream, the cat 
meets up with Batman and starts making out with Batman. So, you know, even dream Catwoman has eyes for another. And we have a cute little fourth wall break of like, well, you know, at least you're getting a hallucination. (laughs) I didn't drink the fire water. Yeah, so I robbed the panel space. So apparently uh, when they come to, it's several days later, uh, Catwoman took the time to get all of the repairs made to the trailer and we just get a little bit of their traveling back. Yes. Oh, we do have an important moment at the Grand Canyon where Harley starts to, she steals a motorcycle and goes as if she's going to try to jump the Grand Canyon with the motorcycle. A little evil can And Ivy takes her aside and goes like. Doesn't take her aside, rips her off of the motorcycle, pulls her back, yeah. saves her life most likely. And says like. Do you want to be with Louis so badly that you're willing to die and be in the afterlife? Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's really important because I think that a lot of Harley's behavior in the past with this rashness, she can't do if she has someone in her life like Poison Ivy. Like when you have someone that close to you, now you owe them to live. Well, right. You're living for another person, not just yourself. And the road trip ends with them going, seeing a giant ball of yarn. They run into your favorite character, Lisa Bizarro. Ugh. He's with Freckles that has something to do with another storyline I'm not familiar with. So we'll just move beyond it. And finally, they get to New Jersey with Louis ashes. Yeah. And as they enter the state lines, Poison Ivy finds a photo album of pictures of young Harley dressed as Wonder Woman and dressed as a cheerleader hanging and smiling and laughing with Uncle Louie. And Poison Ivy embraces Harley and says that Uncle Louie clearly loved you very, very much. Yeah, and I think it's important that even though this was a Gotham City Sirens adventure with the three of them, clearly the most like important relationship in the comic book is Harley and Poison Ivy. Yeah, and that's carried through to when they're at the actual graveyard and Catwoman is going like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I want to be supportive and help. And Poison Ivy's like, we are helping by giving her the space that she needs. And Harley is still feeling a lot of guilt for not hanging out with Uncle Louie more since his wife died. Mm. And Poison Ivy then takes that moment to come and comfort her. And there is this dead tree that they had buried her aunt next to with the idea of in the afterlife, she can enjoy this beautiful tree. But unfortunately, the tree was struck by lightning. So even the tree is like this reminder of deadness. So Poison Ivy has a little bit of oak serum in her back pocket. So she pours the oak serum onto the pine tree and bursts forth this beautiful, huge oak tree. It's such a gorgeous way to end this storyline and just cements our feelings for this couple. And how the understanding that they have between each other. And we have this shot of the both of them looking at this tree. Their tushies are at a beautiful angle and... Harley Quinn says, just when I think you can't get more amazing. Yeah, I I just, I think it's important that for as cheeky and irreverent as the comic is, at the end of the day, it, it knows what is important 
for the story, for the characters, and for the reader. It's these two people. It's character. But they do save a little room <laughs> on the very last page for a little beaver humor. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got, you know, it's Harley Quinn. You got to have a little beaver humor. <laughs> <laughs> So, Lisa, that basically wraps up our third week with Harley and Ivy. Are you feeling any different about this couple from how you felt after the first uh, conversation around the Paul Dini, Bruce Timm miniseries and the Terry Dodson, uh, Carl Kessel series? I mean, I'm I'm always going to appreciate a story where two strong women got got each other's backs and they can have this judgment free relationship with each other. I, I mean, I think that's really beautiful. I think what I admire most about Harley Quinn in particular in this comic is the way that she doesn't let any one area of her life define her whole self. Mm, mm. She can say, I can be a wonderful therapist. I can be a best friend. I can be a good niece. I can be a good daughter. And those things don't necessarily have to correlate with each other at all. I can be a chaotic villain. I can be a criminal mastermind. No one thing she does defines her whole being. And I think that I could learn a lot from that. And for me, I'm just glad that we are getting to a stage where it's not just cheeky innuendo. It's pretty out there. It's like it's spot on innuendo. You know that this is a relationship, that these two are in love, or at least uh, are, are sexual, a couple. Are, sexual with are, each other. Are, or at least sexual with each other. Um, whereas, you know, the other two series really couldn't do anything with that. And I'm excited that this series is pushing that couple into more and more of a reality. Also, through the lens of Ask a Queer Chick, I also have learned that your outside look does not have to be a signal for everybody. The way that Harley Quinn dresses is supposed to send signals to Poison Ivy. It's supposed to send signals to Catwoman, this kind of bad girl, anti-hero, sometimes villainous squad they have. And if someone misinterprets these signals that they're signi- that they're sending out, like that's their problem. Yeah, it's not your fault, right? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like murder burger guy, the cabbie, it, that's his problem. Yeah, you know, the guy at the party, the dope, the blonde guy, that's his problem. It's not Harley's problem at all. And how you're dressing, how you present yourself to the world, doesn't have to say the same thing all of the time. Just because when Har- Harley goes to work and she is dressed like. Dr. Harleen Quinzel, that doesn't make her any less herself. Yeah, and we all know this, right? We all present different sides to different people. Like, you're different with your parents than you are with your coworkers, that you are with your friends, that you are with this group of friends. And it doesn't make you duplicitous, maybe a little duplicitous. No, I think, I don't know if I would use the word duplicitous. I think it is a very human thing, right? That's how we get through life is we operate, we navigate through our many worlds. And I can't let how I appear in one world- Be a judgment to the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, what was fun about revisiting this story was the idea of the road trip, right? And how it is this very mythic 
thing that we have in pop culture and in our own like reality, you know, talking about my time with Steve going across country and reminiscing on those days and how like as I didn't know it was going to happen. But just in the process of going from A to B, things change, right? It gives you space to look inward. Uh, Road trips are a perfect storytelling device, and I will watch any movie involving them or any comic book uh, with them. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right, Lisa. So this is going to bring us to the end of the episode. I cannot believe this is going to be our last episode with Harley and Ivy. Our journey with them has taken us so far. Where are we going next? So we're going to jump to a miniseries from last year. It was published in November of 2019. It's Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, written by Jody Hauser and illustrated by Adriana Mello with inks by Mark Morales and colors by Hi-Fi Design. I'm extremely excited about this run, Lisa. It caused a little bit of controversy when it came out last Ooh. year. Uh, it's bringing us right to the here and now with the Harley and Ivy status quo. If you want to do a little extracurricular reading... And- And who doesn't? Go take a look at Heroes in Crisis, written by Tom King and Clay Mann. The events of this series are coming off of that climax. Awesome. Of course, we will bring all that context to the next episode anyway. Super excited. Okay, Brad. Yes. We have a game of Toss the Beaver to get to. (laughs) Bernie has just been washed. Oh, no. That's that's indeed true, Lisa. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, You can find me on all social medias, at MouthDork. You can now go to YouTube. YouTube? What? And we're going to be uploading the episodes to YouTube. But on top of that, we're going to drop videos here and there. And our first video was a flip through that I did of the 1985 comic book adaptation of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Commando, illustrated by Mark Silvestri. Very excited to some. I'm not an action movie person. Look, Lisa's Lisa's saying that because at the beginning of that video, (laughs) I slipped up and I said that Lisa's not a movie fan. And what I meant is she's not an action movie fan. Lisa, I like good movies. Doing YouTube videos is even more challenging and difficult than this podcast. Yep. And we're going to do many more in the future. And I won't sound as dumb or as- um, You don't sound dumb. Ignorant of my wife's. I'm giving I'm giving a little grief yeah, for are. the end of this podcast. Yeah, Lisa, <laughs> where can our listeners uh, find you online? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. You can reach out to the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. And what? We are still putting our big 50th episode extravaganza together. So if you have favorite moments from previous episodes, please email us a description of that moment, why you love it, along with a time code. We'll forward that to our mega listener, Max, who is editing all of this and pulling these clips for us. He is super awesome. So please... At CBC, nope. How does email work? CBCC podcast at gmail.com. And we've already gotten a bunch from folks, which is really, really cool. Chris Chaka, thank you for the latest email. Yes. And don't forget to be cool like Ariel and give us the gift of five stars on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Give us those positive reviews. We really appreciate it. But until next time, Lisa. Yeah. Keep your love tank full.
and your psychic rapport open. Catch! It's my beaver. No! <laughs>